The Hall of Fame is filled with trailblazers. These are folks who refuse to settle for the status quo. Trailblazers come from sports, they come from medicine, they come from law, they come from life. It might be your boss who started your company. It might be your great-great-grandparents who came to America. Today I want to talk about a trailblazer, an out-of-the-box thinker by the name of Johannes Gutenberg. He was a printer, he was a scholar, he was an inventor, and he was an out-of-the-box thinker. He was able to invent and launch the multimedia mass production revolution we know today. If you've ever read a book, you can thank Gutenberg. And what was amazing is he had to invent multiple independent systems simultaneously. That was a bit of a mystery. We know in 1439 he is the first European to ever produce and utilize movable type. But we don't know exactly what his press looked like. But it probably looks something like this. We have sketches from 30 or 40 years later from those who duplicated his idea. But what was amazing when we reverse engineer what we see coming off his press is he was able to, in one movement, compress down and put two pages at once, the left and right-hand side. The later presses required two different movements in order to get the same amount of work. Now, what launched this incredible revolution was not only his ability to print his publications, but he found a way to mass-produce his movable type, use oil-based paint, and take what was essentially an agricultural tool, an olive press or a, a wine press, and use it for mass production. Now, this made production of books suddenly economically viable. Authors, publicists could suddenly get literacy high and education went skyrocketing throughout the Western world because people could now afford to produce a mass quantity of books. Here's what's amazing about Gutenberg. What he brought to bear in his publication. If he had just produced black and white drawings at a few dozen pages, it would have been impressive. But he wanted his crowning achievement to be over 2,000 pages. Not only that, perfectly alignment, left and right side columns. Now to do that, he had to actually create type that had different widths of different letters so that every single line could be perfectly aligned on the left and right hand side. And his crowning achievement was known as the Gutenberg Bible or the 42 line Bible. And it wasn't just in black and white. He added color and artistry. So here's a question. How and why did a man use so much passion, so much intellect, so much energy to produce not just any publication for the modern world, but the Bible, a book that many people think is irrelevant or at least hard to understand. Well, I got a chance to visit the Print Museum, which is uh, in downtown Cincinnati there. Got to meet the uh, guy who uh, owns it and works it. And I actually took offset production class in high school. So I actually used to work on offset production uh, when I was in high school. We actually did all the production for the whole school district. So it was fun to be back in that arena. And it's been fun to study Gutenberg's life. And I hope you'll find that fun as we begin our journey of different trailblazers today. One of the things that's striking is that of all the things Gutenberg could have done, he was considered a heretic by putting the Bible in everyday layman's hands. And yet he became a historian or a man in history who transformed the modern world by putting not only the Bible but books in the hands of the general populace. But why would he choose to do all that work with the Bible? I want to today explore that idea that maybe the Bible is trustworthy. 
that he would put that much time and energy into it to put it in your and my hands because he felt like it was trustworthy as a place to find purpose and meaning. And I want to compare the Hebrew Bible to the Gutenberg Bible because we don't know a lot about Gutenberg's personal life. We just don't know a lot. Except that he took a loan to, to make this press ultimately didn't make any money off that, those Bibles, even though they sell for $15 million today, which, if you can find one. But it all went to court, and he lost all of his money and all of his printing press that he invented because of his investors got it all back from him. So we don't know a lot about his personal life beyond that. But we can actually learn what are the motivations that drove him. And it was a lot. What drove him to make the Bible the way he did was a lot of what he had saw modeled in how the Hebrew Bible was put together. So we're going to look at three reasons to explore Gutenberg's Bible and whether or not it is actually really trustworthy. The reason number one is that the Bible has been the greatest source of literacy in human history. So maybe we should try reading it. The books that are sitting in our libraries or sitting in our, in our desk or sitting you know, in some drawer somewhere at Grandma's house, and we've never read it because you know, maybe we just felt opaque when you opened it up or it felt like just hard to understand. Literally, tens of thousands of people have given their life to make this the greatest source of literacy in human history. So whether you believe it's from God, believe it's historically accurate, just try reading it as a source of a document that shaped Western civilization. Because if it was this important that this much time and energy went into it in all different cultures and all different times, maybe you should at least put your toe in the water to read the thing. Let's work backwards on the timeline. See, in England, you couldn't even produce a Bible without the government regulating it. Only the government could produce the Bible. There was only about 30,000 books even in print in Gutenberg's time. But in England's time, there's a lot more books in print, but the Bible specifically was very, very protected and regulated. It wasn't until the American Revolution that the Bible really began to be mass-produced outside of government control. In fact, after our, we won the Revolutionary War, there was a man by the name of Aitken. And Aitken, in 1791, came to the U.S. Congress and said, I would like to get the Bible produced in American English. And so the U.S. Congress actually made a proposal to produce the first U.S. government-sponsored Bible produced and mass-distributed to the New World for the sake of spiritual education, moral education, and literacy in general. Here's what the Congress said. We resolve in the state of Congress, we highly approve the pious and laudable undertaking of Mr. Aitken as subservient to the interests of religion as well as the instance of progress of arts in this country and being satisfied from the above report his care and accuracy in the execution of the work. They recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. Come a long way in 200 years. (laughs) But the Bible was seen as a, a source that everyone needed to learn how to read. It was a source of artistry. They affirm him as an artist and a form of spiritual education. Now let's jump back a couple hundred years. One of the first English Bibles was translated by a man by the name of Wycliffe. Wycliffe spent 13 years of his life to translate the Bible into English so people could have a copy of it, but no one could afford it. 
It wasn't to Gutenberg a hundred years later that the great work that Wycliffe did in 13 years of his life spent because he wanted you and I to be able to read the words, not hear it, via the crown or via a priest. We could read it for ourselves. 13 years of his life to translate and write this book so that you and I could understand it. Now, the Washington Times reports that it was the Bible that was the major source of literacy in that day. Significantly so, because of all these factors coming together. It says, in the period of 100 years, reading and writing among males in England rose from about 5% of the population to 25%, eventually reaching 40% of the British population. By 1770, shopkeepers were 95% literate. Literacy in England is directly attributable to the Bible. So if this book has so transformed education and literacy in the world and in history, maybe we should just try reading it for ourselves. And what was the motivation for both the Hebrews, who translated that book for hundreds, thousands of years, and then in modern translations, people giving decades of their life, living in civilizations, teaching literacy to civilizations who didn't have a written language so that they could learn the Bible. The motivation for Gutenberg and others came from a little bitty verse called the Shema in, in the Jewish book of Deuteronomy that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. This is the core of, of Christianity and Judaism. Love God. And then take his book, and I want you to teach them all his commandments, all his statutes, all his promises, diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit down, when you walk around. This major idea was what motivated people of faith for literacy. They wanted to teach that there's promises of God, there's a purpose to your life, that there's stuff in this book that can bring love and joy and peace and wonder to your life. And that's why they dedicated their lives to translating it, to teaching literacy, and to putting it in our hands. So here's the question. If all that time and energy is put into it, maybe I, maybe I should pick it up and just try reading it. Have you ever read a good book? And you said to somebody, oh, come here, I'm dying for you to read this, right? I'm dying for you to read this. When it comes to the Bible, people are literally have died for you to read this. Like thousands of people have literally died to put the Bible in the hands of different cultures because what contained in it has transformed civilizations. And often you, you get to hear parts of the story but not the whole story. For example, you've ever seen the play The Miracle Worker about Helen Keller, who is deaf, dumb, and blind. You had a powerful emotional story of Annie who worked with her and taught her how to communicate. But the piece they leave out was her motivation. Her motivation to teach Helen Keller, besides she cared for her and loved her, was she wanted her to know the God who made her. In her journal, Helen Keller acknowledges that they had a spiritual conversation with Annie, and she said, Annie, I've always known there was a, a God. How could you know there was a God if you cannot see and cannot hear? Helen Keller in her journal said, I could feel the heat from the sun and I knew there was something bigger than me who loved me. And as she learned to communicate, Annie was motivated that she would learn to communicate and that she would learn about the God who made her and the the person of Jesus Christ who died for her. Annie was motivated that the Bible would teach her about forgiveness and love and purpose. Take Yale and Harvard. 
Yale and Harvard were begun as Bible colleges. Hard to believe based on where they are today. But they were actually, if you trace their history, they were designed to teach the Bible as the formative document for morality, for education, for literacy, for uh, understanding legal matters and ethics. Harvard. In fact, Harvard actually has a copy of the Gutenberg Bible. In 1969, somebody tried to steal it. Because remember, they're worth like 13 to 15 million dollars on the open market. So this guy hid in the bathroom at Harvard until the lights all went out. When the lights went out, he snuck out the bathroom window with a rope, scurried his way up to the roof, and walked his way over to uh, another roof line where he could come down to the room they held the Gutenberg Bible. He snuck his way down, got into the room, and he got a copy of the Gutenberg Bible. Put it in his backpack or whatever it was he had. Well, that thing's, <laughs> that thing's like 70 pounds. He throws it in his backpack. He tries to get back up on that rope, and it weighs a lot more than he thought. So as he's trying to make his way up in the middle of the night, he falls, falls six stories, fractures his skull. He's found the next morning, and sure enough, they recover the Gutenberg Bible. But this guy was dying to get it because it was worth $15 million. But Gutenberg was producing it with no vision of that. He just knew that this book had transformed history, transformed his life, and he wanted to get it out of the hands of priests and the clergy and into the hands of ordinary people who could read it for themselves. And so when he produced it in 1450, it produced a quantum leap, not just in spiritual education, but in literacy in general. I want you to watch the journey of what it was like for him to build that press as a craftsman, as an engineer, and how it impacted everything we read today. Let's watch. The fruit of Gutenberg's work can be seen all around us, but it's more important than that. For everything that our culture and our civilization depends on starts with Gutenberg's invention. And this was his calling card, one of the first and finest books created using his new machine. To the modern eye, the Gutenberg Bible opens a window onto a vanished world of monks and monasteries, but when it first appeared in the 1450s, it was viewed not as a reminder of the past, but as a signpost to the future, glittering proof that a new information age was dawning in Europe, fueled by the power of the printed word. I want to find out how and why Gutenberg invented his machine. To answer the how question, I'm planning a unique experiment. And here's the laboratory where it's all going to happen. This workshop in the heart of England may not look very high-tech. That's because the job I have in mind requires 15th-century materials and techniques and a man who spent a lifetime investigating the first printing pioneers. Step forward, Alan May. So this is where you're going to attempt to build a, a printing press, is that right? Well, that's the idea, yes. To print on a press like this, they put two pages of type on this stone here. Right. It's a very heavy stone, about a hundred weight. Goodness. And then the process of printing was a double process. You wound in for the first page right. to just there and operated the lever, Goodness. which made the pattern go down. You then release it partly and, and wind it into the next page and print again. 
Forensic analysis of Gutenberg's original Bible reveals that he only printed one page at a time. In other words, his was a one-pull press. Allen's also finished carving this hefty wooden thread, which generates the pressure needed to print. But the thread needs a counter-thread to guide it on its downward journey, and it has to be cut by hand into the head of the press. Sounds tricky to me, but Alan has a plan. It's an amazing contraption, Alan. I mean, the idea came from a guy called Hero of Alexander in something like A.D. 64. This ingenious device uses these wooden pegs to guide the thread on its journey. Meanwhile, a set of cutters at the other end carve the counter thread through this solid wooden block. I'm careful to tap this, not on the sharp edge. So you're in fact using the real thread itself to cut its equivalent part. That's it, that's, that's, that's the elegant part of it. Actually, it's pushed loads and loads of sawdust ahead of it, look. It's cutting something, but there's only one way to find out if the thread and the counter-thread are a perfect match. Ah, that changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? As soon as you take that out, one can see how it's all working. Oh, my goodness, there she goes. Excellent. So again, all that time, all that energy to produce this. Amazing craftsmanship. The church trying to stop him the whole way because they didn't want the Bible in people's hands. All of that effort. There must be something in this book that's powerful. So maybe we should try reading it. But I think one of the reasons people don't read it is our second reason, is that people don't think that it's trustworthy. And I want to propose to you that the Bible is the most proofread, edited for, for precision document in human history. That if the Bible is not reliable, no other document that you ever read is the external evidence for it, the manuscript evidence for it, and the copying process is amazing. Especially since most of us have heard, well, it's like the telephone game. Somebody said it and translated and wrote it down. There's so many things lost in translation. The precision that Gutenberg used in producing his English Bible had to have been inspired by the proofreading and precision used by the Hebrew Bible. Because to look at Gutenberg's printed word, it's like looking at what we'd call a laser printer. I mean, it's just amazing craftsmanship. But what's even more amazing is the Hebrews did the exact same thing for generations, and they did it by hand. In fact, let me show you a picture real quick. We actually had a copy of this rolled out in our church because a friend of mine, Josh McDowell, has one and let us borrow it. This is an ancient document. Matthew, Mark, uh, sorry, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We rolled this thing out. Had everybody got a chance to come up and look at it, touch it if they wanted to. It is like looking at a laser printer on the right-hand side there. And this was all drawn by hand. How did they do it? Because this kind of quality and precision of proofreading that was used by the Hebrews certainly inspired Gutenberg with the level of precision and detail he used as well. Let me give you a couple of things. I don't know if you've ever done Sudoku. If you've ever done Sudoku, I'm not particularly good at them. But there's a lot of ways you can double check to make sure you didn't make a mistake. Right? There has to be nine numbers in every one of the quadrants. There also has to be, with no repeats, one through nine, every one of the horizontals not repeated. And the vertical's not repeated. 
So that's how you know if you've got a successful Sudoku is there's three different ways to make sure there were no mistakes. Well, the Hebrews were so committed to make sure this book, the Bible, God's Word, was not didn't pick up errors along the way, they had a Sudoku-level detail of proofreading. I'll give you a couple aspects. Number one, the material they used. They used material usually made out of a, of a hide of an animal because it would take you three years to copy one copy of the Pentateuch, the first five books. So it had the last. Two, they experimented with inks, same way Gutenberg would experiment with ink, to make sure if you're going to write this thing, it's going to have to last for hundreds of years. Let's get just the right kind of ink made out of this particular kind of nut. Then, to translate the Bible, you had to be certified. In fact, you would be apprenticed. It would be a generational high calling of your life to be a scribe. So for generations, you would be taught the technique without the smudges, without the, with, the, with no errors. What is the whole copying process? And you had to memorize over 4,000 laws when you went to copy the Bible from page to page. More than that, there was a three-person process when you went to copy it. The scribe would sit with a new document. Someone would sit over their shoulder looking at the document you're copying it from. And then there'd be somebody on your right-hand shoulder looking to make sure you did it right. And they did it letter by letter. So, if you're doing it in English, next letter's A. You'd write down A. person looking over the shoulder, he wrote down an A. T. T. Now, this process was just one way to make sure three different people got it letter by letter, but we're nowhere close to it being certified. Then, in order for it to be a certified Bible that said, we believe this is accurately proofread and passed on to the next piece, when the time they got done with the Pentateuch, for example, the first five books, they had certified counters. You also had to be apprenticed for this for many, many years. A counter was literally what it says. You counted the letters on the pages and in the entire scroll. You would get one counter starting at Genesis chapter 1. He would be counting every single letter. Somebody would start at the end of Deuteronomy and count backwards every single letter. They knew the middle letter and the middle word. As these counters took months counting, they knew, next slide, they knew the middle letter was Leviticus 11.42, and they'd be counting along, and they knew the 152,403rd letter, they knew exactly what that was. And if the counters from both ends, 152,400, 401, 401, oh, couldn't be certified. The scribe had to go back and find the mistake. Then they had to start the whole process over. It's three different passes those counters had to go through to make sure it hit the center letter. Then, it wasn't certified. Then the counter started over and did the center word. They knew the center word as well. So they start in Genesis and they start in Deuteronomy and they knew the middle word was in Leviticus 13.33, although those numbers we added later. But they knew the center word and so sure enough it was the 39,924th word. Now I could go into the archaeological evidence and the manuscript evidence that it's far, far superior to the Iliad or to Gaelic Wars and things like that. But here's my point. If anything is historically reliable in its copying process, the Bible is not just a decent standard. It's the gold standard. It was considered a sacred calling to have this job and to make sure God's word was passed from generation to generation. So whether you believe it or not, you don't have to believe it. You can believe it every you want, Horizon. 
But I want to propose to you that if you've heard the rumors or the legends that it's sort of this rumor copying game and telephone game thing, I'm just saying that is not intellectually true. So besides try reading it, try trusting it. Try looking at the actual process used because it is an amazing process. And I think that process had to inspire Gutenberg because the precision of not just making an E out of type print. He had to invent the type print for the English language. He made different size E's because he wanted every single column to line up on every single page. Very similar to the precision of the Hebrew book as well. So he's got to invent a press, but the real invention that transformed human history, that works specifically with the English language better than the Chinese who invented this several hundred years later with the Chinese language, is the English letter with only 26 letters he was able to mass produce in a way that transformed the world. Let's look at how he was able to figure out how to do what became known as movable type. Let's watch. Gutenberg's plan would only succeed if he could devise a system for mass producing individual letters which could be set and reset in any order. He went to the Guild of Goldsmiths and found a man called Hans Dunn. Together, they made the crucial technical breakthrough which made Gutenberg's brilliant idea a practical proposition. So this is a type foundry that you created. This table is, believe it or not, a complete foundry. Right. I've asked Stan to help me make a piece of type, a single letter E, which I can use in our grand printing experiment. For the sake of authenticity, I want my letter to match the dimensions of the original font used in the Gutenberg Bible. First, we have to make a punch, a master copy of the letter we want to reproduce. After we've transferred its outline onto the tip of this steel bar, it has to be carved by hand using a file, a very sharp file. You do maybe a punch a day, two punches a day? So... In order to do the full set of type that Gutenberg needed for his Bible, how much work was that? Well, there are at least 270 characters, perhaps more. So, you know, given that a lot of holidays, I would imagine close to the better part of a year. A year. So if you were one of those people that invested in this new technology, you'd be getting rather impatient. You'd be saying, now, <laughs> Mr. Gutenberg, do you really need eight different E's? Yeah. And the reason he needed different ones was... Obviously because it was a very elegant and harmonious look he was after. He wanted absolutely top quality. So he wanted some that were slightly wider, some that were slightly narrower, mm. so that he could always have justified lines Correct. without trailing white space and exactly. sort of ugly, yeah. Yeah. you know, bad compositing things. This is a smoke proof, a way of checking that our punch is an accurate copy of the letter we want to replicate. It looks spot on. Now, how clever is that? Can you imagine two letters a day with a file? How committed must you be to how important this document is that you're doing that and then precision putting it all together and proofreading it, putting it together in that way? That's like I like to propose to you that if you've never tried reading it or tried trusting the Bible, just put your toe in the water and try it. There are so many people who who grew up agnostic or atheist with a lot of concepts about the Bible they never really studied, only heard third hand, that when they investigate, they said, you know what, there's a lot more credibility here than I realize. Take Anne Rice, for example. She, write all the, she read, wrote all those erotic vampire novels 
like Interview with the Vampire, that great Tom Cruise movie. Um, but the book apparently was pretty good. Well, she became a Christian later in life, uh, expresses that through Catholicism. And she said as she began to listen to all the reasons the Bible wasn't true and the story of Jesus wasn't true from her liberal atheist friends, she was, before writing these novels, she was actually an investigative reporter. And she found the Bible incredibly credible and the objections from her liberal friends very not credible when she began to investigate. Here's what she said. Some works were no more than assumptions piled on top of assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of very little or no data at all. She's describing the objections to the Bible. The whole case for the divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, the case was not made. Not only was the case for it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I've ever read. So again, she'd read a lot, but as she investigated, she found the Bible was actually trustworthy, not what she had been exposed to. Or take C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia series, or Grief Observed. He was an agnostic as well, until he met Tolkien, who wrote the Lord, Lord, of, the, Lord of the Rings uh, series, who was a Catholic, and began to challenge him. C.S. Lewis was an absolute master at ancient literature. That was his specialty. And when Tolkien challenged him that the Bible is not written as legend, but written as historic document, C.S. Lewis had a very unique perspective to test that thesis. And here's what he said. He said, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know none of them are like the Bible. There are only two possible views of these gospel texts. Either the reporting is pretty close to the facts, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without known predecessors or any successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. So he's saying the Bible was not written as an allegory. It was written as historic narrative. He says, I know what the other ones look like. The Bible claims to be history and it stands on its own claims. So if these two famous agnostics could look at the evidence and start trusting the Bible and begin to relying on it, maybe it's worth reconsidering in your life as well. Thirdly, even if you don't believe any of that, the commitment in Gutenberg... To produce such a document of excellence, it is worth emulating. The Bible, the Gutenberg Bible, or the Hebrew Bible, the detail, the precision, the care, the wonder, the bringing your best to bear professionally is worth emulating in your life. And there's something unique about the Bible that says whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of God. You can bring a deep sense of meaning and purpose to your life. Even if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, it tells you a way to emulate your life with excellence. In fact, in the book of Exodus, is a rather unusual verse. It speaks about God's love for excellence and his love for craftsmanship. We actually read this verse at a funeral a few months ago. First time we've ever read this verse at a funeral. Here's what it says. The Lord spoke, I called Beziel, I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, to work in all manner of workmanship. That God says work matters, whether you're an artist working with numbers or working with people. 
Bring your full self to bear. I've given you talents and skills. And excellence honors God and excellence inspires people. What if you emulated that commitment to excellence? Again, Gutenberg could have just mass-produced a few pages. It would have been impressive. But to do the entire Bible in one particular font with 42 lines that line up left and right and then to go back and color code each one personally to the individual buyer was an unbelievable standard of excellence that inspired people and he felt like honored God. We read this at a funeral because someone in our church's mother had passed away and she was an absolute craftsman. And just about anything, upholstery and sewing and wedding dresses. We read this first because she was such a beautiful expression of God's craftsmanship. She didn't talk a lot of religious talk, but people saw something in her because of the emulation of craftsmanship that she brought to everything she did. Do you do the same? As you get older, it's easier to do the stuff you used to do. You're kind of winging it, kind of, kind of coasting a bit. Or you bring in the same detail, the same sense of excellence to everything you do. One of our values at our church is excellence. The reason we've taken so many years to put our, our video online and stream is because we didn't want to do it until we could do it with excellence, broadcast level quality. Because we think that excellence inspires people. We think it honors God. And Gutenberg certainly was motivated by that. All of the different ways he put this thing together. Again, each one of his Bibles today sell for 10 to 15 million dollars if you can get a copy of one. In fact, when the Russian army, the Red Army, came into uh, Germany after World War II, because of all the devastation and stealing things the Germans had done, they started looking for trophies. And so the Red Army came into Germany and they found uh, two copies of the Gutenberg Bible and they took them. And for years, Germany would send notes, hey, you took our Bible, and Russia would be like, no, we didn't, no, we didn't, no, we didn't. They finally acknowledged that they had two copies of it in their museum, and like, and by the way, you're not getting it back. It's like countries have fought over this book that just kind of sits on an end table in our house. The value of how it transformed human history. So if you're not going to try reading it or try trusting it, at least emulate the way in which Gutenberg and those who passed it on brought excellence to bear in everything they did. Be a trailblazer. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at several different trailblazers. Your legacy is yet unwritten. We're going to learn about Arthur Guinness next week from Guinness Beer, who is inspired by his faith in God, the Bible, and Jesus to start Guinness Beer. I'm going to show up next week. (laughs) Are there free samples? Martin Luther King. Martin Luther. Almost everyone in the world who has, been, who has shaped and modified their industry, you can go back and see a motivation, a deep motivation of excellence that came from a person of faith. Your legacy is still unwritten. And if you want to have the maximum spiritual legacy, I'm just saying those who've had a maximum spiritual legacy or just legacy in general, spirituality was a component of it. And this book, the Bible, was part of that. You might as well try reading it to be the maximum trailblazer. Try trusting it. Be a maximum trailblazer. And try emulating this sense of confidence and excellence in everything you do can be a spiritual act of worship. And that's just not true in the past. It's true in in the present as well. When Alan Mulally took over as CEO of Ford, one of his favorite stories he would tell 
was about connecting the work being done at Ford to a higher calling. He told this story all the time. It's well-traveled, one of his favorite stories, in, in casting vision for people to do things with excellence. He told the story of three different bricklayers. You walk over the first bricklayer, what are you doing? Laying bricks. Which is true. Not a lot of purpose, not a lot of calling, not a lot of joy to the work. Just laying bricks. Came to the second guy. What are you doing? I'm building a wall. This wall is going to protect people. This wall is going to be a place that people are housed. This is a wall where people are going to you know, make meals. I'm building a wall. A little more purpose. Came to the third person. What are you doing? Oh, I'm building a cathedral. This isn't just a brick and not just a wall. This is a gigantic, beautiful cathedral that's going to stand for generations to see and be inspired and, and, and have people be connected to my creator. And Alan would say, in the same way, you're not just doing work. You're not just doing work for others. But when you connect your work that you have been given gifts and talents and opportunities by your creator, you're part of something so much bigger than yourself. Everything you do can be done with a higher sense of purpose. It's his favorite story to tell during his turnaround at Ford. Or I got a chance to hear Melinda Gates. A couple years ago, she was interviewed at a conference I was at. She talked about her faith in the Bible and Jesus and God. And how she felt like she needed to bring a sense of excellence to doing these world-changing, trailblazing kind of things. It was amazing, as big and as much resources as Melinda Gates had, how simple and detailed and how much excellence she brought to the details. She said that one of their goals was to eliminate polio from the world. Well, that's a pretty big deal. And how it continued to go down. She says she, of all the things Melinda Gates has going on, she gets a weekly report of every place that polio is, is operating in the world every week. And puts that attention to detail, to tracking. In fact, every week she gets a report on the sewer systems of the world. Really? That's what Melinda Gates is doing? Yeah. They track polio and where it's at in sewer systems so they can immediately send teams to begin to address and contain it in the sewer system. And she would say her desire to rescue people, save people, stop these deadly things was impacted by her faith in Jesus and the Bible. And her attention to detail and doing these world-changing things really comes down to weekly reports about sewer systems. As much bad news as is heard all the time, she said, actually, the news of what's happening in the world is pretty amazing. That those who are in severe poverty in the world has dropped 50% in the world in the last 25 years. You always hear the bad news, but she said, the work we're doing as leaders, as individuals, in our communities, in our city, in the world, has reduced severe poverty by 50%. In the last 25 years. You know, Gutenberg, for the most part, wouldn't see his legacy written. It would be years after his death. What will you be known for? Your legacy is yet unwritten. And you can make an impact to change the world. Spiritually, professionally, and personally. If you put all the pieces together. And ask God what he might do with your gifts your talents, and your opportunities.